Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last week, we told you about Italy's presidential election, when it seemed the probable winner would be Mario Draghi, the prime minister. But the incumbent was re-elected, Mr. Draghi stayed put, and somehow the political scene changed anyway. And here are two ideas you wouldn't naturally put together, TikTok and nuns. Our correspondent meets with the sisters of a convent dedicated to spreading the word across all media. Turns out some of TikTok's most creative content is second to nuns. First up, though. In a press conference with Hungary's President Viktor Orban yesterday, Russia's President Vladimir Putin gave his first public remarks on Ukraine since December. He blamed America for using Ukraine as a pawn to stop the spread of Russian influence. And he warned that Russia's concerns about the expansion of NATO were being ignored. In response, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said America was open to continued dialogue with Russia about Ukraine. Well, here's our view. Uh, we don't know what President Putin is going to do. Uh, and it is our responsibility to, um, and it's an imperative, to uh, keep the door to diplomacy open. Uh, that does not mean that we are going to uh, not stand by our own values, which includes the, the, our belief that, uh, and the belief of NATO countries, that, uh, that it should be up to NATO members to determine who is able to join NATO, and that the door to that should be open. For now, as at least 100,000 Russian troops crowd at Ukraine's borders, those doors to diplomacy are open. Yesterday, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in Kiev, speaking with Ukraine's leader Vladimir Zelensky. Russia's and America's foreign ministers spoke on the phone. And as all those international efforts at de-escalation play out, NATO, founded in 1949 in response to the threat of Soviet Russia, has a renewed sense of purpose. Europe faces perhaps its greatest security challenge since the end of the Cold War, which puts NATO back at the center of transatlantic politics. Secretary General, thank you very much for speaking to us. Uh, so I wanted to speak to the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, a Norwegian, about how he sees the situation. Uh, what is your best assessment of what uh, President Vladimir Putin is intending to do? There is no certainty uh, about exactly what he is going to uh, do, uh, and uh, maybe uh, no final decision has been made. 
uh, but uh, there is a real risk uh, for uh, an armed uh, attack uh, on Ukraine once again. Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. He spoke to Mr. Stoltenberg in Brussels on Monday. Uh, Mr. Stoltenberg has been doing a lot of media uh, at the moment, talking to lots of journalists to send two or three messages. Firstly, the Allies are united. We are ready. We we have conveyed uh, in many different ways, uh, also uh, in, in in meetings with Russia, in, in in our written proposals, that 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 we are ready to sit down. Um, uh, and, Secondly, uh, they are firm. Uh, and third, to warn the uh, Russians that what they're doing is likely to be counterproductive. If Russia once again moves into Ukraine uh, because they are afraid of too much NATO close to the borders, they will get the exact opposite. There will be more NATO at uh, Russia's borders. And given that Mr. Stoltenberg told you that there's a, a real risk of an invasion, does that suggest to you that diplomatic channels are failing? So, uh, Mr. Stoltenberg says there's a real risk of war uh, that is undeniable given the number of troops uh, that are there. But he also keeps open the possibility that this is a very brutal form of diplomacy and that uh, the Russians are seeking some kind of diplomatic advantage as a result of it. In other words, it might be a big war or a big bluff from the Russians. And NATO has to be prepared for both so, options. Uh, uh, we are uh, both preparing for uh, a potential um, large-scale Russian military uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and they are getting more and more capabilities that uh, indicates that they have that capacity to do so. Uh, uh, but we're also preparing for uh, smaller... Uh, uh, operations, for instance, false flag operations inside uh, Ukraine, sabotage uh, attempts to uh, to topple the, the Ukrainian government, the democratically elected government, uh, and of course also uh, cyber attacks. So but there's still the shadow of a, a potential military response on the part of NATO. Well, they're being very careful. Nobody in NATO is saying there's going to be a military response in Ukraine itself, but they are saying they're willing to reinforce the allies uh, within NATO uh, uh, should the Russians act. In other words, they want to extend reassurance to the allies. And you mentioned that this is the, the biggest crisis that NATO has faced since the, the end of the Cold War. What, what sense did you get that Mr. Soldenberg thinks it's, uh, it demonstrates NATO's value, its purpose? So the main message that Mr. Stoltenberg wants to send is of NATO standing united. Mr. Stoltenberg wants to demonstrate that NATO is central to security in Europe. And it's good not just for Europe, but also, he says, for the United States in its bigger positioning towards Russia and China. As long as we stand together, Europe and North America, that's good for Europe. It's actually quite good also for the United States to have 29 friends and allies when they deal with for instance, the security consequences of China. No other big power has as many friends and allies as the United States has in NATO. So that's the main reason, uh, uh, that's the main lesson, is that we need to stand together. I don't believe in, in North America alone. I don't believe in uh, Europe alone. I believe in North America and Europe uh, uh, together. And we see that now. Uh, there is a Canadian... He told me that NATO represents 50% of the world's defense spending and of the world's economic might. This is important in any context of discussing Ukraine, but also in the wider context of protecting NATO and the Transatlantic Alliance. As long as they remain united, 
he suggests uh, people will not try to take them on. But the, the European Union has its own ambitions when it comes to defense. I mean, how does this, this muscle flexing from NATO fit into the EU's ambitions on that score? I think it shows who is a real guarantor of security in Europe, and I think it's NATO and the United States, because uh, the United States is part of that alliance. The Europeans, particularly the French, but others think Europe should do more, should be able to project power, should be able to act when needed. But the real weakness there is a lack of capacity. The European Union cannot defend Europe, meaning that 80% of NATO's defense expenditure come from non-EU allies. Uh, this is partly about resources, but also about geography. We have Norway and Iceland in the north, but important for the North Atlantic. We have Turkey in the south. And then in the west, we have the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Uh, and, and all of this is important for European security. It's the worth remembering that just a few years ago, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said NATO was brain dead. Uh, I think it is showing that it is far from brain dead and that, in fact, it is the main force that is able to flex military muscle. And and so, all told, at at this crucial moment, what's your takeaway from the conversation you had with Mr. Stoltenberg? I think two things. First of all, NATO's own sense of purpose is now clear. After the end of the Cold War, it wasn't quite sure what its purpose was. So it talked about out of area or out of business. In other words, expeditionary operations in places such as um, Afghanistan. Uh, It also focused on counterterrorism and a host of other security threats. Now the territorial defense of the alliance in Europe is central core business. The need for that has been proven and reinforced. I think Also, that the importance of America in European security has been shown again. It's the Americans that have helped to marshal together the response. They have obviously spoken to the European Union, the individual members, and NATO. But the third thing is, I think there's a worry, which is that although many allies are delighted that America is back after the years of uncertainty of Donald Trump in America. They also know that Donald Trump himself may be back or a Trump-like president may return or that even a mainstream future president will want to focus more on Asia and worry less about Europe. So I think the Europeans are on notice that they have to do more themselves to look after their own security. Anton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where... Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. (laughs) 
Italy has a new president, or at least a new presidential term has started. Proclamo eletto Presidente della Repubblica Sergio Mattarella, che ha ottenuto la maggioranza assoluta dei componenti. On Saturday, after eight tense rounds of voting, lawmakers at last settled on the incumbent, 80-year-old Sergio Mattarella. It wasn't what he had planned for himself, and his acceptance speech was less than euphoric. I giorni difficili trascorsi per la elezione alla presidenza. Mr. Mattarella talked of duty prevailing. In short, he said he'd do the job, but not because he wanted to. Going into the contest, Prime Minister Mario Draghi, who leads a coalition government, had been widely tipped for the job, including here on the show. But in what's a rarity for Italian politics, stability prevailed. The re-election of Mr. Mattarella had always seemed like a good idea, and indeed the arithmetic was so complicated that it seemed like a possible outcome. But the problem was that he had repeatedly ruled himself out. John Hooper is The Economist's Italy and Vatican correspondent. My understanding is that he only changed his mind after Mario Draghi, the Prime Minister, took him aside at a ceremony and said to him, everything else is deadlocked and whatever your personal feelings, your country needs you. And the last time we spoke, which was just last week, all of the talk was around what a uh, surefire winner Mr. Draghi seemed to be. What, what changed? Well, the election of an Italian president is not unlike that of a pope. And there's a saying that surrounds conclaves that he who goes in a pope comes out a cardinal. And that's really what happened on this occasion. Mr. Draghi was indeed a a marginal favourite, I would say. But the more that the voting went on, the more the talks continued between party leaders, the more it became apparent that he just didn't have enough support. The biggest group within the electoral college was formed by the lawmakers and regional delegates of the Five Star Movement. And a lot of those people have had reservations about Mr. Draghi being too much of an establishment figure. The second biggest group was the League, and the League's leader, Matteo Salvini, had said right from the start that he thought that Mr. Draghi was better off doing the job that he was doing already, that of Prime Minister. So that really left uh, Mr. Draghi with... Uh, the centre-left Democratic Party, with support, oddly enough, from the far right as well, who are out of government, and then a rag bag of independents and smaller parties. So he just didn't have the momentum that was was needed. Okay, so the broadly progressive five-star movement gets its say, the, the right-wing league gets their say, but in the end, everyone stays put. Does that leave things where they were when last we spoke? Absolutely not. Huge damage has been done during this presidential election, particularly on the right. Mr. Salvini tried and failed to impose a candidate of the right. And in doing so, he really made them look rather foolish and then changed his mind 
threw his weight behind what you might call the Mattarella option and did so without consulting his main ally, uh, Giorgio Meloni of the Brothers of Italy, a party on the radical right. And the result of that is that the right looks now very, very disunited. At the same time, the Five Star Movement came out of it uh, equally split between supporters of the leader, Giuseppe Conte, and supporters of the foreign minister, Luigi Di Maio. So all around, it looks like a battlefield after the battle, and this will have an effect going forward on a number of the players in Italian politics. There is only about a year until the next elections. What, what do you expect from Mr. Draghi and, and his coalition in that time? Well, I think that the big change, as far as the government is concerned, is that the parties have been weakened, and Mr. Draghi, now that he is no longer in the running for the presidency, doesn't really have to worry about his popularity. Now, that's very important because he faces having to introduce lots of reforms and make lots of investments in order to get Italy's full share of the EU's post-pandemic recovery funds. And some of those reforms are going to be unpopular with vested interests represented by those parties. He can really brush aside those concerns and go ahead. Uh, His position in that sense has been greatly strengthened. And that's very good news not only for Italy, but also for Italy's EU partners. So on on balance, as as ugly as the procedure of it all has been, it it seems as if all of this has been relatively good for Italy, bringing stability, taking some of the heat out of the extremes of Italian politics. Yes, I think so. For now, at least. I think that the bonus that Mr Draghi has enjoyed is not going to last forever. The closer that we get to the election, the more fractious the parties are going to become. But for the moment, yes, a messy procedure, an ironic conclusion, but ultimately quite good for Italy. John, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. The laughter that you can hear comes from sisters Oriane, Petra, Renee, and Danielle Lucier. They're two nuns at the Daughters of St. Paul convent outside Boston, and they call themselves the Media Nuns. Johnny Williams writes for The Economist. So Daughters of St. Paul was founded in 1915, And their mission is to minister to people through every form of media. They run a publishing house. They host their own podcasts. They record their own music. But most recently, they've actually become pretty popular because they've gone viral on TikTok, the video sharing app. They have about 155,000 followers on their account, and their videos have gotten more than 15 million views. So they've become somewhat of an internet sensation and actually earn their own hashtag, which is hashtag Nuntuck. Which sounds like a martial arts weapon, if you ask me. But <laughs> if their mission is to cover all media, then why are they so popular on TikTok? 
Well, you should see for yourself, Jason. If you get up your phone and search for Nuntuck on TikTok, you'll very quickly see some of their videos pop up. Right, okay. Oh, you're washing, you're washing my dishes. Sorry. And there they are. It looks like they've done a big um, egg coloring project. Yeah, they did that for Easter. I need to get you stuff water to get in there. If you take a look at this other one, there's one nun that's hiding from another sister in a box. Yeah, no, I see that. To surprise her, yeah. <laughs> hiding is a thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised a nun fits in a cupboard that small, but that, that's, that's fun. <laughs> and, and as you can see at the end of most videos, one of the nuns has this conspiratorial grin. Their posts blend life in the convent with popular culture, riffing off of other trends that are happening on TikTok. But they're making their own nunified version, as they say. And, and it couldn't be more clear that they're having a lot of fun making these nunified videos. Yeah, and their cheerfulness largely explains why they are so popular on TikTok. It was honestly one of the most fun interviews I've ever done when I spoke with them. I do not know how Sister Olivia fit in that little cupboard. I don't know either. <laughs> she sat in there for a really long time. But I the videos actually took a while to get right. At the beginning, they told me this really, really funny story about how they tried to prank an elderly sister and it did not go as well as they expected it to go. Because we actually have like pulled pranks on other sisters who were not ready for it and it totally backfired. <laughs> so we were like, okay, look, we're not reliving that experience. <laughs> but overall, their manner is just infectious, isn't it? And I suppose that, that all of this infectious cheerfulness is in keeping with the mission to cover all the media. But how are they dealing with the, the popularity they've got on TikTok? You know, they, they are generally unfaced by their newfound fame. At the beginning, they were surprised. Uh, they were fielding calls from Greece and Italy and England and people wanting to interview them. But what they really care about is the interactions that they have with people online. And they pray for everybody who comments and everybody who follows them online. It is something that we do pray about, and we pray for the people commenting, and we yeah. pray for the people watching them. And often, like, we dialogue with the people in the right. comments, which is, like, super life-giving. One um, of the things that the sisters yeah, told me is that yeah, TikTok yeah. is helping people realize that nuns are just regular people, like everybody else. And their online interactions actually have led to conversations about faith and even to friendships. It's been really enlightening to see, like, how curious people are. The most, like, common comment is, like, I was first on prison talk and now I'm on nun talk. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> how did I get here? I'm in the and, depths of TikTok. <laughs> like, and, and I'm here for it. You know, it has to be said, you don't come across nuns online all that often or, or really out in the world all that often. No, convents have been shrinking over the past few decades, and it follows the downward trends that you see in religion across the board, especially in America. Today, there are about 41,000 nuns in the country, down from 160,000 half a century ago. But some still find it compelling. And ultimately, for the sisters, it's about connection. That's what they found as nuns and what they have found on TikTok. God took our little... Our little gift, our little like 30 second video and said, this is a gift for these people. We didn't know what it meant to be go viral, per se. Thanks very much for joining us, Johnny. Thank you for having me, Jason. <laughs> and so we got phone calls from like morning shows. <laughs> 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.